Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. His hand closed automatically around the fake horcrux, but in spite of everything, in spite of the dark and twisting path he saw stretching ahead for himself, in spite of the final meeting with Voldemort he knew must come, whether in a month or a year or in ten, he felt his heart lift at the thought that there was still one last golden day of peace left to enjoy with Ron and Hermione. I'm Slughorn's cushy chair. And I'm recently deceased ice cream expert Florian Fortescue. And we're best enjoyed together on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. <laughs> Hey, Casper, tickets go on sale for our live tour today. And the only way to get access to the special meet and greet after the show <gasps> is to show up with a copy of your book, The Power of Ritual, which people can buy at powerofritual.org. Yes, I will be signing books. We'll be taking selfies. We'll be having a great time. We'll be coming to 20 cities across the U.S. and London, England. We would love to see you at one of our live shows for a night of blessings. We're going to do a whole new show all around blessing. And this is going to be a really fabulous, fabulous experience with music. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if the coronavirus ruins our ability to gather? Have no fear. Every city will still have a Zoom live event. And instead of having your book signed by Casper, we will send you an exclusive bookmark autographed by Casper. You have to buy the book in order to get that, though. You can find everything at harrypottersacredtext.com and powerofritual.org. Wow, Vanessa, we finished book six, The Half-Blood Prince. I feel like this is maybe my second favorite book in the whole series. I love it so much. We get such an insight into characters that have been a mystery for much of the series so far. 
I'm curious on rereading it this time, like what new impressions emerge? Like, what do you think about what this book means within the bigger story of the Harry Potter series? I was thinking the thing that I found myself talking a lot about in this reread of this book was the failure of systems. And I do think that part of that is because we are in this scary time where I've been scared that Trump will be reelected. And now I have this new thing to be scared about. We all do with the coronavirus. But I don't think that that's the only reason that that's been on my mind in this book. The book starts with the two ministers meeting, and it's this terrible system that the two of them have. And then we see what a horrible system the Death Eaters have, that the only way that Narcissa feels like she can protect Draco is by going to Snape. And then we see the failed system at Hogwarts, where there is a child that people are noticing is struggling and is at risk. And like the only way that they think to talk to him is Snape and they have like no backup plan. I just would like to think that if we knew something so specific, like one hateful man was on the rise, we would be able to beat him, but there's just like no organization. And so I guess the plot felt sadder to me than ever on a systems level and more believable to me than ever on a systems level. Does that resonate with you or am I being all doom and gloomy? (laughs) Well, I think both. This is partly what happens when we reread something, right? It's not just the text that we're reading. It's also the context in which we're reading. And for me, it really all centers around Dumbledore in the way in which so far in the books, there's been this sense of like, oh, if Dumbledore's around, everything will be okay. He's so powerful. He has all the answers, right? He's got a plan. And in this book, we discover both his physical frailty, right? His hand, of course, is this symbol of his mortality and his fallibility, But also, you know, his absence, I think, as he's going on this other series of journeys, right? He's collecting all these stories. He's collecting this data about Voldemort. And of course, at the end of the book, his final absence. Kind of along similar lines, I heard this phrase recently from a colleague of mine who talked about our sufficient insufficiencies, that we as human beings are sufficiently insufficient, that we're all imperfect. And so what's important to me in this book is that we see all of our characters, Every single one of them, whether they're goodies or baddies, whether we love them, where we hate them, all of them are sufficiently insufficient, whether it's, you know, Slughorn being cowardly and selfish, whether it's Harry being impulsive and using a spell without knowing what it means that really injures people, whether it's Ron's silence in how he treats Lavender, how he avoids her, Draco's weakness, all our characters just have inherent flaws I think it's comforting for me in some way to recognize that because, of course, I have flaws too. No. (laughs) It doesn't mean that I'm like wrong or bad, but it does mean that I'm sufficiently insufficient. I just love that phrase. Yeah, I I guess I want to push back a little. I think that sufficient insufficiency, I think, is a really important idea right now because we all feel like we can't be helpful. And that there are things that we want to do. And the thing that everybody is telling us is the best thing that we can do is stay home. And like that is just a horrifying feeling of like, but I want to be able to help. That is a moment in which we have to remind ourselves that we are sufficient in that feeling of insufficiency. And I I think that Draco, I would feel excited to talk about that idea of sufficient insufficiency, whereas Ron and the way that he treats Lavender, 
I don't find that to be sufficiently insufficient. Ron is not in an impossible situation where his flaw is making him a not best version of himself. He's just being a jerk. Yeah, Vanessa, I think that's such an important question. Like, where is that line between, yes, we all make mistakes, we're all imperfect, and actually, like, you've really crossed a line here and you need to be held accountable for it. I think that there is a difference, but how do we know which is which? That's really tough. And I think that maybe the difference is that I think Ron is capable of making the right choice. I think that he has a good choice available to him and that he is strong enough and smart enough and compassionate enough to make it and that he's not. Whereas I think Draco, it would take so much bravery in order for him to make the better choice. I am prepared to say that is too much to ask of a 16-year-old child. Whereas with Ron, I'm like, nope. I can ask that of you. Walk up to this woman who you've been making out with, look her in the eye and say, I'm sorry. Well, that's really powerful because we've seen Ron do that with other people. Like we know he's capable of it in a way that with Draco, like we've actually never seen him really be kind. Or stand up to Hitler. Right, exactly. Like even at the very end of the book, he is saved by the bell. It's not that he chooses not to kill Dumbledore. I mean, he's delaying, he's delaying, he's choosing not to in the moment, he's choosing not to in the moment. But like, it's not like he's making a final choice there. So that's, that's really interesting. What I find is that people blame themselves for things that are absolutely outside of their control. And that is when I want to say to them, you are sufficient in this insufficiency. To all of the women who are pregnant right now and are like, what world am I bringing my baby into? I don't know how, where I'm going to be able to deliver them. I think it's so important for us to tell each other, no, Harry, you are sufficient in this insufficiency. It's not on you to save every single person in the entire world. Or no, Draco, this is too much that has been put on your teeny tiny shoulders. You know, we're now in the books where... Each book is marked by the death of someone, right? We had Cedric and then we had Sirius and now we have Dumbledore. And, you know, the death of a child is the death of innocence. The death of Sirius is the death of some sort of joy. You know, he was this man who wanted to be a dog and bark and make sort of joke around to the very end. And then the death of Dumbledore seems to be the death of safety, Right. Like that death doesn't, it's not just about the person, but it's about that person in relationship to me and the part of myself that was true because that person was there. And I think in some ways it's the death of Harry's childhood, right? His decision to break with Ginny at the end of her understanding of what that is. It's not about Ginny. It's about Harry having to choose this task, having to choose this mission. Yeah. It's a goodbye to having someone else be in charge, someone else make things okay. And now it's just up to Harry. So in in that way, I love that, that Dumbledore represents this death of safety because it's now Harry or bust. But you know what? Before we dig into some of the specifics and especially Harry's arc through the book, let's do a little 30 second recap of the entirety of book six, The Half-Blood Prince. Vanessa, you're going to go first. And I'm so excited to find out what it's like. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Count me in. You bet. You ready? Yep. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. 
So the two ministers meet and it's a hot mess. Scrimshaw is now uh, in charge of everything. And Harry goes to school and he um, Slughorn comes and Snape is finally the defense against the Dark Arts teacher. And Voldemort is um, on the rise again. And Harry is obsessed with Draco and thinks that he's a Death Eater and everybody's like, chill out. And they spend a lot of time in the pensive and Harry has to get a memory from Slughorn and Aragog dies. And then Snape is the half-blood prince. Also, there's a half-blood prince thing the whole time with um, a that was really impressive i love like little pieces of detail like aragog's death the most important thing of the entire book a spider died i'm really with you this should be called harry potter and the spider dies (laughs) okay casper are you ready to fill in one or two things that i didn't just a few pieces Yeah. yeah let's do it okay on your mark get set So this is really the book of the backstory. Harry gets to go with Dumbledore in one-on-one sessions. They get to go into the Pensieve and see all about Voldemort. We learn about um, his parents and the bad, 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 bad. And then um, more bad things happen because then he tortures children. And then he's like, please let me be a teacher. And Dumbledore's like, "Mm, deny. Um, And then they go to a cave to try and get the locket. um, And lots of infery, infry, still not sure. Uh, And then drink, 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 bad, 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 chug, 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 fake locket. Dumbledore dies from the tower. The end. So let's talk about Harry. So often in our conversations, we're looking at interesting details, we're looking at interesting narratives and perspectives, and we kind of miss the character who's at the center of all of these books, which of course is Harry Potter. I think there's something really important for us to take away from Harry in this book, which is Harry is becoming totally focused on purpose. I read recently a really powerful email from a a minister in Newtown, Connecticut, who had been there after the Sandy Hook school shooting and had been helping that community make it through just the most horrific event. And one of the things he advised colleagues now in this age of the COVID-19 virus was to help people focus not on meaning, but on purpose. Give people something to do, help them do it well, and then celebrate them for doing that. And for us right now, that means physically distancing, staying home, not exposing ourselves or others to the virus and thanking each other for doing that. And I feel like that's what's happening in this book for Harry, right? Like he knows already he's the chosen one, but like, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? Thinks Harry. Like, what what does that mean? I know I have to kill Voldemort, but how? And in this book, we learn about the Horcruxes. He learns the how, not just the what. And so the process of looking back and being like, oh, it started with the Tom Riddle diary. Now we have to find this other one. Like, let me map out where these different Horcruxes are. Where might I find them? I just I just felt that so strongly that this is really about sharpening his focus. Does that make sense? Totally. What I was thinking about is this is the book where, to some extent, Harry finally gets it through his skull that other people matter and that that <laughs> is, to some extent, wrapped up in Ginny and in the fact that he falls in love. You know that he's really understanding that other people matter because he's sort of deciding at some point, Ron or Ginny, Ron or Ginny, right? Ron's going to be so mad. And then that choice sort of gets taken away from him because in a moment of passion, he just kisses Ginny, right? You mean rather than kissing Ron? Yeah, exactly. Should I make out with Ron? Should I make out with Ginny? Ron or Ginny? Ron or Ginny? (laughs) But I think that, you know, this whole series, we've been frustrated with him again and again. He feels as though he has to do it alone. And, you know, and even at the end of this book, he says, I'm going to go do this alone. 
But at the end of this book, he's happy to have the wedding to look forward to. He's not mm. banging his head up against the wall and being like, oh, human connection getting in the way again. Instead, he's right. I am connected to people and that matters. I love that reading. Also because he then intentionally goes back to the Dursleys, knowing that that is a protection of love that Voldemort doesn't understand. Like I'm beginning to believe that Harry understands that this love thing is real and that it's not just a silly story or some made up like fairy tale, but it's like an actual powerful protection that will help him survive. I think that's why this moment with Fleur and Bill is so powerful when we see Mrs. Weasley have this turn of an opinion about Fleur, where she's like, oh no, this isn't just because my son is like super smoking hot and you're some like sexy French lady. This is real. And I I am going to be the last person to oppose that, even if I would never have picked you for my son. I see that this love is real. I I think that's what I took away so much always putting Harry in contrast with Tom Riddle is you just see the complete absence of that for Voldemort. So I really love that reading. The other thing that's interesting about Harry in this book, and you mentioned it in your 30 second recap, is like he is obsessed with Draco being a Death Eater. From the very beginning is like sneaking on Draco, is trying to find things out, right? He uses the Marauders map. He's doing everything he can to prove everybody wrong because both Hermione and Ron are like, dude, let this go. And all the teaching staff are like, everything's fine. Like, chill out, go home. To some extent, I wonder whether this obsession is related to the fact that Draco is still like the first child that Harry meets in the wizarding world. Draco represents this person that he could have been, right? Draco invites him to the dark side from the very beginning when they're getting their robes fitted in Madame Malkin's. Is there something here that takes us right back to the beginning of book one, do you think? I really think that this is about the fact that Harry is right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he is. It's dangerous for someone to think they're right when everybody else is wrong and to not be listening to the people around them and to become obsessed. Like these are all really dangerous things. And these are the justifications of stalkers and conspiracy theorists. And I don't know what lesson to learn from that because I don't think we should be encouraging people to be obsessive on their own, but nor do I think we should be encouraging people to simply follow the mainstream when they know better, right? Like there is greatness on the people who are willing to look where nobody else is willing to look and lead on these things. It's really complicated for me because it turns out he's correct. Yeah, I was reading about this wonderful story of the man who every weekend would go out with his metal detector and like walking the countryside of England. And, you know, the way in which our culture looks at folks who go metal detecting is a little bit like Looney Lupin, right? Like what is going on? Turns out this man discovers the Staffordshire Hoard, which is the largest hoard of Anglo-Saxon gold ever found. Massively important discovery. And suddenly you look at that person, you're like, All of those years of waking up early and taking out your metal detector, walking out on your own for hours is worth it. And so to some extent, you can't even say that the proof is in the pudding because sometimes there is no proof and you are still right to do it. It's such an uncomfortable conclusion to draw. But I think you're right, Vanessa. Yeah. And Harry is not always right. You know, he is obsessed in the first book that Snape is the bad guy. He is often wrong with his obsessions. But the Draco obsession specifically, it's absolved for me. And I I guess I think obsession is interesting in that way. We don't know when it crosses over to unhealthy. And 
only hindsight will tell and we just mm-hmm. move forward anyway. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Casper, I was wondering if you now wanted to do our book tradition of taking the long view. The long view. (laughs) So in this tradition, we love to pick like one or two objects, characters, ideas, something that really struck us in this book that maybe we haven't had enough attention paid to over the course of the books. And I'm curious, what is the first thing that you're picking out? So the first thing I want to talk about is Slughorn. So we obviously meet him very early on. In the very beginning, you have to convince him to come back at all. And then at the end, he's the head of Slytherin House. Right. And by the end, he's willing to share a memory that he's incredibly ashamed of. And I guess I think two things about him is he, one, seems to have backed his way into being brave. He didn't mean to. He didn't make a series of choices where he was like, do you know what? Never mind. I'm going to do the right thing. Right. But like Harry with the Felix Felices and Aragog and, you know, this big complicated situation helps him be brave. And then Dumbledore's death sort of shocks him into it. I think that at the beginning of the book, if you had asked us to guess, we would have said, this is the man who would have gone running, you know, as soon as the battle broke out. But instead, he ends up not running and really staying in a meaningful way. And then the other thing is that 
just the similarities between him and Gilderoy Lockhart. Oh, that's interesting. Like, there are always these teachers that are brought in, right? Yeah. There's Lockhart, and then there's Lupin, and then there's Mad-Eye Moody slash Barty Crouch Jr. And then I a little bit just blocked Umbridge from my memory, <laughs> right? <laughs> Umbridge. And now there's Slughorn. And so just thinking about the one of these previous teachers who he reminds me the most of, it's definitely Lockhart, right? And that he's silly, and he's this comic relief, and right. there's attention paid to the silly things he wears, and... And yet with Lockhart, at the end of the day, there wasn't a there there. And with Slughorn, there is. Yeah, Slughorn was really an interesting place for me to trace. Well, there's also an amazing connection between the two and, of course, memory, right? Like throughout this book, Harry is trying to find out what happened to get this memory that Slughorn won't share. And Lockhart steals them. That's how he builds his whole career, is, is stealing other people's memories about great stories, great deeds. And he gets kind of revealed. So the narrative arc for both of those characters is kind of the inverse, right? I mean, Lockhart is always silly, but we still have to admire him to some extent. And then in the end, like, he's just this despicable creature. And for Slughorn, like, he's ridiculous, he's stupid, he's untrustworthy. And in the end, you know, he really comes good. And I think the fact that he is able to make this commitment to Hogwarts and to to sacrifice his own safety, even for the protection of others, is related to his liberation from the shame that he's felt about these memories about Tom Riddle. Like, the fact that his knowledge that made him hate himself can now help Harry, I think is intricately bound with his capacity to be for something bigger than just himself. And it's a beautiful narrative arc, really, for him. Yeah, the role of memory is fascinating in these books. I'm sure somebody has written a dissertation on it. Is there something that you would like to take the long view? Of? The long view. Yes, absolutely. I actually want to choose something, a physical object that isn't far away from Slughorn at all, because it's in his classroom, which is the Half-Blood Prince Potions book. I just think it's so fascinating to see this item that's, you know, being hidden in a cupboard that has so much of Snape's character written into it. You know, Snape is always this duplicitous, two-faced, multi-alliance figure that it's very difficult to pin down until the very end of the book. What's so striking to me is that this document shows us him as he's becoming the man that we will half know <laughs> throughout these books. And it also, because it's such an intimate text, right? Like it's just Snape in his private moments. We see his creativity, his ingenuity. Part of me really fell in love with Severus by seeing how he creates things in this book. I just love looking at this physical text. I can imagine all the scribblings over it, the folded pages, the blotted bits that have been corrected. I love looking at it. Yeah. And I i mean, I love thinking about the magic of objects and especially books, right? Where if you buy a used book, you sometimes will get the old inscription of like, right. to Ariana, happy sixth birthday. And you're like, oh, <laughs> why am I reading this when I'm 37 and Ariana could read <laughs> when she was six? I mean, it's marginalia, obviously. But the other thing that's so interesting about books is how they can sit in your shelf forever and be nothing and then you can decide to read it and it can entirely change you mm -hmm. and the fact that this book has just been sitting meaningless not doing anything for this whole time when it's had the ability to teach so many students and to change so many I think it's a a wonderful extended metaphor for the complicated power of all books 
Absolutely. And it also is just such a critique of Snape as a teacher. If we know that he can do this, if we know that he's creative and inventive and just this amazing potions person, like why can't he bring that to the classroom? And it feels like this double life that he's living is robbing him, or at least it's robbing the world of this potential and incredible teaching capacity that he would have. It's kind of like when Harry goes into his memory, it's this invasive experience, right? Harry is trespassing into a part of Snape that otherwise he wouldn't have wanted to share. But unlike finding a sort of troubled young man who's embarrassed and ashamed, like here we see a really wonderful creative mind that's looking for a place to shine. And I wish I wish we get to see more of that in Snape as an adult. It's like we get to see the potential of who Snape could have been in this really beautiful and really sad way. It's like watching a home video of someone who you only knew as like an old crotchety person. And you're like, oh, they they were this other thing. And there's a lot of sadness in that, that instead we see him just be awful to Neville. Yeah. So the final thing to say about the book is, of course, Harry's discovery of it, you know, and I, I think it reveals less wonderful things about Harry. I mean, first of all, he's very vain. He loves winning. He loves being good at it. And it's undeserved. There is something distasteful, I think, in Harry's, I don't want to say obsession, but certainly reliance on the text and also his willingness to try out something that says four enemies in the heat of the moment, of course, is ends up being a very, very risky and potentially lethal choice. I don't know. There's something not very pleasant about how Harry engages with this book. Yeah. I mean, part of me wants to say that we can all see ourselves in Harry, that all of us are Harry Potter fans and we can understand what it's like to carry a book around with you and sort of think of it as this special thing that speaks to you and that makes you braver and stronger and better. I think that part of me understands this wanting to keep a book to yourself and believing you have a special relationship and wanting to hold it tight. And then we absolutely see the flip side of it. Yeah. And I also just want to like, let's put this next to other books that we've seen. I mean, obviously Tom Riddle's diary is the most important book. I mean, one of my favorite ideas that I remember learning about was how the books kind of mirror. If you start with book four at the center and then take them out either side, right here, we have the second and the penultimate books are both centered around this kind of book of magic that leads one of the characters astray. And so there's this lovely mirroring of what's happening throughout the Chamber of Secrets. And even just the appearance of Aragog again in this book, as we met Aragog in book two. So there's a lovely kind of callback to the world, you know, four years ago. And Slughorn and Lockhart. That's right. And perhaps the reason why it's important to look back at Chamber of Secrets is that we meet the young Tom Riddle. You know, so much of this book is about Voldemort. And honestly, that that's the second thing that I really wanted to talk about is that we learn so much about the young Voldemort in this book. Just as we get to meet Tom Riddle in book two, we have a sense of his backstory. We get a sense of his parentage, the home and really the non-home that he was raised in. And this absence of love that just drenches the whole of Tom Riddle's story, that's an important reminder, I think, that we first really got to understand in book two, this kind of young, ambitious man who is willing to do what it takes to get power. Because for him, power is protection. And it's really the like, you know how there's these five different love languages, right? Like gift giving and words of affirmation. For Voldemort, it's like power. Like that's the only thing he seems to understand in terms of human relationship. 
what do you think we learned about Voldemort in this book? Like, how, how has it shaped your understanding or reading of him? I mean, I think he's somebody who the systems have failed. I think that there should have been someone very early on who said, this child has like some sort of dissociative ability and needs a lot and lot of extra love. And we see Dumbledore fail him in this book by saying, sure, go to London by yourself. This is a child who is constantly pulling away and the adults were just sort of glad that he was pulling away because that made him not their problem. And instead of filling him up with love, they were like, great, we don't have to be around this creepy kid. And, you know, we see this in classrooms to this day. You know, the students who are disruptive, we can just let them play a video game in the back of the classroom. And then at least I'll be able to teach the other 49 kids in the classroom. And I understand that math, right? Like, I I understand why Mrs. Cole makes the decision to be like, do you know, I'm just going to let him play alone in a cave. And I have all these other kids to worry about. But then she doesn't notice that he's harmed these other kids. So the system failure seems to be that there are not enough people valuing taking care of children and loving children. One of the most inspirational projects I've come across over the last few years is an organization in Baltimore called Thread. And their whole methodology is to support young kids who are at risk of dropping out of high school and have various different challenges by having six to eight adults love the kid. Like that's their strategy. And they have volunteers who each commit at least one hour every week in person with the kid doing whatever the kid needs. So it's like, you need a ride to school? Great. You need basketball practice? Great. You need math tutoring? Great. And it works. And I think that's something that no system can replicate in itself, but it can help people do the human thing of loving. I just wish that had been around for Tom Riddle because I have so much confidence that we would not see Lord Voldemort today. We would see Mr. Riddle, this wonderful wizard who is now probably teaching kids and being a fabulous, wonderful, loving presence in a way that we would never have expected from Tom Riddle. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, Vanessa, it's time for us to do our kind of ultimate florilegia practice. The florilegia of florilegia. A florilegia squared, if you will. We've both chosen a little sparklet from the text, which in some way we think might represent the whole of book six that encapsulates the message that we're taking away in this reading, knowing that every reading there'll be a different sparklet, a different message. What did you find that really stood out for you in this reading? No one can help me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> You'll like it when I explain why. Yeah, tell us. Why did, why did you choose it and where is it from? So it's from Draco saying to Myrtle, it is the moment that I have such compassion for Draco because while it's not true, it is 100% how he feels. Mm. And there are moments in all of our lives when we feel that way where it's like, this is it. I am totally alone. And I would just say it is almost never true, but it feels so true. And he really believes with his whole heart that nobody can help him. Snape is offering himself up to help and Dumbledore would certainly be there to help if he reached out and his mother would help if he reached out, Mm. but he doesn't see any of that. And I just, I know that feeling and I feel like So many of our listeners right now who live alone and are anxious about the coronavirus and feel like, God, I'm just stuck here with my own anxiety, feel like no one can help them. Mm -hmm. And they might know on some level that it's untrue, but that feeling of no one can help me still pervades. And I just think it's it's rock bottom for him, Mm. right? Mm. He's in the girl's toilet crying to a ghost and then he sees Harry and Harry cuts him up. I mean, it's just absolute rock bottom for Draco. What about you, Casper? What was your sparklet of sparklets? So I chose a quote that comes from Dumbledore as he's standing opposite Draco on the tower just before his death. And he says to Draco, killing is not nearly so easy as the innocent believe. And the reason I chose it is because the war has started the showdown is is here. The whole of book seven is a long drawn out war that ends in a final battle. And I really want to take a moment before we enter just a time where death becomes normalized to hold on to this truth that Dumbledore says that it is not easy to kill. Like it's not who we are. It's not how we're supposed to be. And that something must have pushed us so far out of human relationship that we're able to do that. And Draco is a beautiful sign for me of that. You know, he's been made a Death Eater. He's been raised in a household based on wizarding supremacy. He has been indoctrinated in every way that you could. I mean, his own life is at stake. And yet he's still not able or willing to kill. And there's there's something powerful in that that I really want to hold a candle to. And I think to our point 
earlier, it's because Dumbledore does the right thing here. Yeah. And like loves Draco in a way that he wasn't ready to love Tom Riddle. That's right. And is like, you don't have to do this. And then literally has a plan. He has a systemic plan in place of Snape coming up and killing him. He goes so far out of his way to protect this child and love this child. So I think that Dumbledore has learned how to love better over the last 50 years in a way that's really meaningful. Okay, let's put these two together. Yes. Killing is not nearly as easy as the innocent believe. No one can help me. I can't help but have heard that as if Dumbledore was saying both. Mm. And then no one can help me, right? He was dying anyway. I don't know. I guess part of me just wants to think that there are certain things that like no one can help us through. What about you? I'm just suddenly thinking about Dumbledore's guilt that he carries. And we're going to learn much more about that in book seven, how he feels responsible for his sister's death. And so I think he's speaking in part about the the regret and the guilt and the just this memory that will not leave him alone. That's why he knows how much it means to save Draco. I, re- I really like reading that all as, as Dumbledore. What if we switch it around? Will you read it for us, Vanessa? No one can help me. Killing is not nearly as easy as the innocent believe. I mean, it's just striking me that this is probably the first person Snape has killed. And nobody can help Snape. And killing is going to be really hard. And he has to do that on his own, completely on his own now. So no one can help me. And killing is not as easy as you all believe. It's just making me realize how brave Snape is. Mm. I still hate him. Don't worry. (laughs) There is no reason for him to be mean to Neville. Um, What about you, Casper? No one can help me. Killing is not nearly as easy as the innocent believe. Okay, bold proposal. Yes. Could we ever read this as Voldemort? I am so into that. Right? Well, I just want to think about it because on the one hand, the way he goes about killing people is seemingly heartless. I mean, it is heartless, right? Like it's brutal. It's easy. It's clinical. There's a lack of feeling or emotion every time it happens, except of course with Harry, who we see him like being obsessed with in this way. But I do think that at least that no one can help me is true for Voldemort as well. Like that he he only sees one path, or at least at one point only saw one path. And maybe at this point, the Horcrux creation has broken his soul seven times. Maybe this is describing a former state rather than a current state, but There's something very intriguing for me in reading this as Voldemort. I mean, it's like what he would say to his therapist. Right. (laughs) Killing is not as easy as you think, okay? (laughs) But that's what I like about this phrasing, as the innocent belief, because if he were to say that, he would immediately draw a line between innocence and guilt and put himself on the side of guilty. That's what is interesting to me, and if we read it as his words, is that he understands what he's doing is wrong. And we have not seen any evidence of that. And at this point, I'm looking forward to book seven to release Voldemort from this death trap that he's in. Like, I want him to be free and the killing and the horror, but like his liberation too. So Casper, we did Sparklet of Sparklets. Who do you want to give a blessing of blessings to? Well, no surprise. I am going to bless Percy Weasley. Oh, I am surprised. (laughs) He's like not in this book. 
right? He's barely in this book, but we see him at the very end be present when the minister comes onto Hogwarts campus. And I cannot believe that he has not reconciled with his family, even when his brother was attacked in the way that he was. We've seen his father be attacked. Like, just the extent to which his hard-heartedness is stopping him from returning to his family. It's just maddening. And I guess it's a blessing for Percy, but it's also a plea as much as possible. Like, in this time of the coronavirus, I feel like there's a spotlight on the relationships in our lives in a way that there hasn't been before. In the sense of everyone's checking in with each other, making sure that grandma can use FaceTime, right? Everyone's figuring out the tech. Everyone's making sure everyone's as okay as possible. And these are the moments when there's a little crack. If there's an opportunity for reconciliation, sometimes a moment like this is the moment to do it. So my my blessing is for anyone and for Percy especially to like take the courage and risk reconciliation because it could be too late too soon. It's a cri de coeur, as they say. <laughs> After all that, Vanessa, who are you going to bless? I want to bless the hero of heroes, Katie Bell. She just emerges to me as this like gorgeous beacon in this book. You know, I I am someone who is obsessed with thinking about the girls in the basements and (laughs) Katie was right. She was an innocent bystander who got hurt because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time over like patriarchal nonsense. And she gets well and comes back. And is graceful and gracious and kicks butt on the Quidditch pitch and like probably goes on to be this amazing witch in the world. And so I think to me, it speaks to how hard we should be working to work with people who have been in whatever basement they've been in and to just like honor how hard they fight. And yeah. I just love Katie Bell. We love Katie. We do. We really love Katie. I have to say, we were talking about how much we love to bless minor characters, Ariana in particular, and somebody said, oh, like Hannah Abbott. And all three of us said at the exact same time, Hannah Abbott not is a not minor a minor character. character. <laughs> and that's how I feel about Katie Bell, too. You know, she's just looms so large in my heart now and my imagination that I'm like, Katie Bell is not a minor character. <laughs> So I might name my next dog Katie Bell. I just love Katie Bell. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, I'll be doing a final outpost for book six with the very wonderful Stephanie Purcell. Then we're going to take a week off and book seven starts on April 16th. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. It's been really lovely to see our community care so well for one another in this difficult time. You can also support us on Patreon where we are so glad to receive your support. And of course, you can always send us a voicemail or leave us a review on iTunes. I have a book coming out. It's called The Power of Ritual and you can pre-order it either in audio or hardback at powerofritual.org. And we very much hope to see you at one of our live shows this summer, all across July, 20 cities throughout the US and in London, England. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nedelman. Our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. And our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Ball. Thanks to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. I'm Severus Snape's mirror who will just keep seeing two faces. <laughs> 
And I'm his comb who hasn't seen him in years. (laughs) (laughs) And this is Snape's Stop Kit on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. (laughs) This is my favorite game. (laughs) 